Well, good morning, almost afternoon. So perhaps some of you came to the Compline service Ash Wednesday, or maybe you went to another Ash uh, Sun, uh, Wednesday event, but you remember there was the, the uh, ceremony of the Ash ceremony, um, imposition of Ash. It was meant to remind us to, to, to kind of hit a recheck button, uh, a recheck that says, you know, remember who we are, that we came from dust, we will return to dust. And, and we begin to remember that that is, that is an aspect of our curse, that we are living in a context or under a curse. And therefore, we entered into a 40-day season, according to the liturgical calendar of the church, that, that wants to, to spend that time of Lent uh, thinking deeply about what it is that justifies our curse, what it is about our lives that's broken, it's sinful, it's rebellious. Um, we do this not because, uh, just to go into, you know, dwell on the bad things, but we do that because we do it in the, in the coming light, of course, of Easter. That is to say, the word Lent means the dawning of the sun. It's a season that we practice anticipating the cross and the sacrifice of, of the curse upon Christ even as Christ will be vindicated, such as to satisfy that justifiable curse that God has placed on humanity, Christ therefore satisfies that justice. That's the, the narrative, that's the story. The tradition began in about the third or fourth century of the early church. The 40 days uh, was, was reminiscent of the 40 years of wandering somewhat um, hopelessly in the wilderness for Israel. It's reminiscent of the 40 days that Christ was tempted in the wilderness as well. It's a season, as I've said, of, it was intended to be a season of repentance and a cry for God to restore and to redeem. We do all this with an eye then towards Easter and celebration of the crucified Messiah being raised from the dead. Lent is therefore a time to ask God to help us see our own frailty. Now, let's be careful that no one thinks that the Lent is commanded of Scripture. As the spirit of Lent ought to be a daily cycle as well of repentance and faith. And yet I've been at least personally uh, practicing Lent a little more self-consciously, reading a few books on something else that developed right about the time of Lent. And that was what perhaps you know today as the seven deadly sins. We know that that originated again around the third century by the Desert Fathers. It got reincorporated by Gregory of Nonsensus and other ancient pastors and has been a useful tool. Even some have used it in Lent, Lenten seasons to, to try to reflect on what is it about me uh, that deserves a justifiable curse and and how can I move towards repenting of that and, and embracing yet again with the joy of, of grace the gospel of Jesus Christ and my forgiveness? And so I'm going to be uh, uh, preaching two sermons, uh, Lenten sermons, this one and the next one that I preach before uh, Easter. And then if you come to the Compline, we'll do the, the short, what I call commentaries, will also be a Lenten uh, commentary, but it'll be focused on the, the seven deadly sins. Actually, it'll be six because next week we don't have Compline due to all the vacations, as you can tell, and um, but we'll pick it up the next week. 
So today, what are we doing? You probably can tell. We're focusing on that seven deadly sin known as greed. The others, by the way, are sloth, gluttony, anger, lust, envy, and pride. There have been different sevens actually through the years, but that's the one that seems to be most prominent. And so we want to look at greed. And our passage uh, perfectly uh, deals with this subject. It happens to be in the book I've been preaching through anyway in 1 Timothy. But in that passage, we're going to be asking this question, what, really, what is greed? And what's so offensive about it? And so the whole thing is, if you're looking for your, your, your sort of structure here, uh, there's five parts. First, it's going to be greed's context. It sets, it frames the whole rest of the passage and by that framing, you'll understand what greed is. And then you have what's, what I'm going to describe as the unthankfulness of greed. What is then the sin? It's the unthankfulness of greed. Thirdly, it's the destruction of greed. Fourthly, it's the haughtiness of greed. And fifthly, it's, we're going to see the remedy of greed. But before we do this, let's pray. So, Father, we come uh, to this passage and we pray what we kind of don't want to pray and it's not a service we may think we want, but we know we need. Lord, convict us, we pray. Convict us of our sins. Enable us to see our brokenness in a way that, that makes sense of the horrific events of Christ suffering hell. A sinless man for us. Help us, Lord, to be rejuvenated by his love and your love. Help us, Lord, to be restored and refreshed by his resurrection, as we understand more deeply our deadness in our trespasses. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first of all, notice how our passage began. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, if you've been around Christianity for a while, you probably do not understand this passage. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Because when I say the word godliness, what are you thinking? Often people will be thinking, well, holiness maybe. Or some kind of a moral, you know, maturity. You know, it's, we're thinking a moral person, a holy person. That really, my, it, it certainly relates maybe, but it really misses the point of this word. Especially the way Paul uses it already several times in Timothy. Godliness would be better interpreted as... as God-centeredness, or God-reliant, or God-focused, or God-oriented, or God-directed, or God as fully sufficient and satisfying in a way that we live our life in, with, through, and by the presence and the purpose of God. It's Godness. It maybe is a better way to to define this, this Greek word and the way it's been used. And so let me read you a very wooden, sometimes a wooden translation is helpful, right from the Greek. Here's how I would translate it. Godliness, godness, in the way in which we are consumed by and with and for God, is of great profit as sufficient, period. So let me read it again. Godliness is of great profit as sufficient. That is, godliness 
being sufficient and has great profit. Now, why is that important? Because this word profit, which in your translation might be just great gain, it's clearly an economic term. It's clearly wanting, it's setting up the whole passage of contrasting a kind of profit that we ought to be seeking in a manner that contrasts with another kind of profit that we ought not to be seeking. And that's how this whole structure is set up in the rest of our passage. And so therefore, to live right with God, accounting to the wisdom of, according to the wisdom of God, is to live recognizing that God is sufficient. It's stated in the Proverbs over and over and over again, most often in contrast to the insufficiency of worldly gain. It's the passage we heard today. A man who constructs this, this fort that's going to give him great security and significance in the world. And he discovers that it's a fort. It's going to be able to do those things, significance and security. It's only in his imagination that it can do that. And therefore the fort is likened unto those who do not fear God, but have constructed something else to fear, that which we would describe as an idol. And so you begin to see a context here that's, that's also playing off on the traditions of the Old Testament, whereas that at the core of, of, of our sin is this, this unthankfulness or unhopefulness that God is enough. And the temptation, therefore, to make of our own doing to make another God. And therefore, what are we seeking from that God? Our security, our sense of safety, of protection, and our sense of worth and value. Ultimately, it's really interesting how some translations of English will, will translate this word, blessed are those, as happy are those. And while you can go back and forth of whether that gets to the nuance of that word, I think it gets to at least one aspect of it. Because the scripture is clear from Genesis to Revelations that true and abiding and transcendent happiness is found in the Lord. And that's related to what it means to therefore fear the Lord, to recognize that God and God alone is the only one that can satisfy. I was so, it was so perfect of you, Aaron, to, to, to introduce where you are, to introduce uh, our, our worship in that context of Augustine's statement that we can only be satisfied with God. So there's the context for this passage. Notice how he says it then. He says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. What's he saying there? He's saying all the stuff that we can construct, all the fortresses that we can build, they aren't the ultimate source of our happiness. That this is the idea that God, what transcends this life, what will, was with us before and will be with us after and is with us now, the one thing that will never let you down, in other words, is God. This is so basic. If you're walking in here and you're just kind of thinking about Christianity a little bit, maybe somebody 
dragged you in here like somebody dragged me into a church one day about, what was it now, 40-something years ago? That's really the message, is that you're, you could search to and fro all over the world. You will never be satisfied. There will always be more ambition and more desire. And here it's an acknowledgement that the story of the Bible is there's only one place, one way, and that's to be right with your maker. And there's happiness, shalom in that place. So that's how it's all set up. Starting off with this sufficiency statement regarding godliness, that is, that worldview with God as the source of our life in it, that is the place, that is the worldview of great gain, great profit. It'll profit a man much, or a woman, or a child. You know what I mean by that. And, and therefore, that's what brings us happiness. Now, that picks up then, secondly, with the unthankfulness. Greed being, at first, here described as a kind of unthankfulness, uncontentedness. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. <laughs> now, let's just be real here. You believe that? I mean, come on. Do you really believe that? That if with food and clothing, with these, we can be happy. I mean, doesn't this just, <laughs> it's stunning how, how absolutely radically wrong this statement is in our world. I mean, today, Gordon Gecko's famous greed is good, and I know that's in context to a system that's being espoused there and all of that in Wall Street, uh, in the movie Wall Street, but that, that creed is good, isn't that what is truly believed now and in our world? Now you say, no, I don't hear people say it quite so crassly. No, I don't either. I mean, but, but don't we say ambition is good? Now you're going to have to hold on with me, okay? I'm going to get to the issue as what, 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 what is ambition? What is desire? Is, is there a way that we can understand this in a way that, well, just hold on, I promise. But we live in a world where that's just the opposite. I mean, with un, without apology, you talk to a, a person in the business school right there, and, you know, what are you looking for? I'm looking for that which is going to make me a lot of money. And that's a good thing. And we, we know that, you know, lays out fair capital, you know, it all trickles down, you know, whatever it is, there's a justifiable principle, however you get there, from whatever right or left you get there. But at the end of the day, there's a kind of money solves our problems ethos in our world. Isn't that true, though? And can't money, doesn't have a lot of power? And can't power be used in useful and good ways? Yes, but we need to keep reading. People do things to make more money. How much of this life then is enough, you're starting to ask. I mean, really? I mean, like, what, what do you mean? I mean, like, one pair of clothes, two pair of clothes, three pair, and there we go, we start bargaining. How many clothes is basic? What kind of house is basic? You know, what kind of lifestyle is basic? I mean, how much is enough, Pastor? I mean, this is getting really, you know, it's kind of, you know, peeing me off a little bit here. You're being very provocative. It's so easy for you to do that in the back of your pulpit there. 
What is enough? Good question. And so there's something interesting, though, here. The thesis of this passage is to say that according to the principle that we've already seen, godliness, if there is godliness, then we can be happy in any circumstance. No one can take it away. It is that powerful of a happiness. It's that powerful of a contentment. Now, let me try to explain this. Now I'm going to get a little nuanced, and I think you're going to like this, but, but sometimes we use metaphors or anecdotes, right? So I'm going to give you a, a kind of an anecdotal or metaphorical kind of a expression, but it's not, but it's real. It's actually from social sciences. They, in social sciences, have begun to see the very thing this passage is saying. But they discerned it through making a, a distinction that I think is very important. It's going to at least help you understand how the Bible could say something like this. And here it goes. For instance, in 2010, there was a study published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And what did it discover? It found that people don't get happier as they get wealthier beyond a point of basically, and you could equivocate about how much is enough, depending where you live and all that, but basically, it just totally, the research totally agreed with this passage. That people don't, the happiness quotient, if you will, does not increase necessarily with money. In fact, they show that it does increase to a point as you creep up the, the money scale uh, towards a kind of flourishing basics. But when it reaches around 60, 70 in the, in the context that it was in then, which, again, that's, you could say that's a lot of money. That's Warren Baker. Maybe you'd say that's not a lot of money. I don't know. Depending on your thing. But the point they were making is after that, it actually starts to reverse and go negative. But that caused a lot of confusion. And so other studies were, were, were born out of that study to try to figure out, well, how are we defining happiness exactly? And this is where I found something very helpful that kind of has, again, a metaphorical value to this passage. So a study happened a year ago, and this study found the exact same thing. Okay? They did the same kind of a thing. They found the same thing. But what they, they did is they termed their, their questions differently. And they learned that, that you can distinguish between what's called emo, what they called emotional well-being and what they called life evaluation. Emotional well-being refers to the emotional quality of life, to one's everyday experiences. The frequency and intensity of experiences like joy versus sadness, stress versus peace, you know, uh, anger and affection versus affection. And, and so you, you begin to see these categories show up and, and people's lives that are felt and experienced and lived within this first category of, they called it the emotional well-being, the, the happiness. And in that sense, what we just described as true is still true. That is to say that you don't, this stuff that I just described, emotional well-being, does not show correlation with increased wealth. In fact, it can even show a negative after a certain point, it begins to turn the other direction, become even negative. But if you ask them a question that would evaluate your life, in other words, the question being, uh, is, do you, are you living the good life? Now what people were doing is they're evaluating what they have. They're evaluating things like, yeah, I have a good life. I have a big screen TV that I could watch Yale basketball if I weren't preaching right now. Um, 
I have a, you know, a nice house with a comfortable bed, you know, therapeutic for that matter, you know, what do you call those Tempur-Pedics? We just got a bed like that. Best purchase I ever made in my life, just by the way. Somebody's gonna pay me some money for that. It's on record, right? But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I got a good life, you know? I, I look at, you know, I got a good car. Better, I even got a Harley Davidson motorcycle. You know, I'm starting to rack it up. <laughs> I got a good life. But see, the research would say, well, okay, you got a good life. You, in other words, you're using the criteria of, of what's being begged here, though. But are you happier? And when I read this, and I was thinking about this, working it through my own paradigm, I thought, when, when, were, when, when do I think I was the happiest I've ever been? And without doubt, Lisa and I say this all the time when people say, well, you know, what, what do you, honestly, it was truly the time we were poorest in seminary. We were absolutely broke. And it was the first two or three years we were here as a church planner, absolutely broke. One car and hardly running and, uh, you know, vacations, but camping, never ever in a hotel and, you know, all these creative organic foods at night, you know, save money and. But there was something about that period. I don't, you know, I, I can't even put it all down, but it was just the happiest time of our life. Three kids, no, just dirt broke. But it was a happy time. I'm not saying I'm not happy now, but I don't think I'm happy. And I have a lot of stuff. This is making sense, this passage. It reminds me of the Proverbs. He prays, here's a prayer that I don't think I've ever quite been willing to pray. But maybe if I really believed in what this passage is teaching me about happiness, I would. It prays this way. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Now what's interesting about that is that perfectly summarizes what this passage is saying. It's all about God. I'm praying God for happiness, so therefore, I'm interpreting, I'm, 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 the reason of this prayer, the reasoning of this prayer is, God, don't give me anything that would in any way diminish my godliness, the way I've described it, that godness, that God-satisfyingness, intimacy with God, I want, I know that's what I want, God, so give me neither poverty because that will, could possibly infringe upon that godness of my life, but give me never wealth either, because that could infringe upon my godness in life. Now, you have to frame this in here. As you're going to see, I'm speaking to a congregation that relative to the world is wealthy. And I'm, I'm, I'm just hanging you out on the, on, the, on the, you know, I'm like the spider in Jonathan Edwards' sermon right now, and you're just dangling going, man, I'm getting screwed big time in this sermon here. So it's some of you thinking, hold on, not so fast. I think you may be surprised. But this is what's going on at this point. In other words, think about this for a minute in the context of greed. Greed comes when good, when the good gets out of hand and a virtue overly stressed becomes a vice. That's what this passage is saying. Greed comes, greed could be defined as when good gets out of hand, something good gets out of hand. And a virtue, something that would be virtuous, 
overly stressed, that is, trusting in it too much, putting too much in it, wanting it too bad, becomes now a vice. That is, when a gift of God, we turn into a curse. Let me, therefore, for the second point, be clear. Paul is trying to say this. Greed is in direct proportion in the negative value to gratitude. In this, we're to be content, to be thankful. Greed is inversely correlated to gratitude. Gratitude is always sparse in those with greed. Greed is that great misreading of the true condition of our situation that refuses to worship God, the giver of all good gifts. It was said by one of the ancient uh, desert fathers about greed. He said it this way, that if you only had one prayer, if there was only one prayer in your repertoire, he said, the prayer should be thank you. And then you have prayed well enough. Just try to test that. Try to put that to the test and see if in the scripture thankfulness isn't one of the, the most prominent themes of our Christian faith. Even a passage that will say God created all things for good to be enjoyed. So all things created are meant to be enjoyed. And it goes on to say what? If according to thankfulness. But if it's according to now stressfulness, as in it's now become my God, guess what? You're staying up all night in fear of that God. In fear of losing it in fear of not having it, in comparing yourself to other people who do have it and gaining your significance and worth and prestige from that, it's miserable. The same gift, happiness or misery, all depending on whether it's greed or gratefulness. That's the idea of the second part. That leads us to the third, the destruction of greed. Let me read it again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through the craving that some have under wandered away from the faith and proceeded and pierced themselves with many pangs. There's no doubt that Scripture takes a very hard line against greed. There are many, many, many more passages in the scripture that warn against the danger of money and wealth than there are about sex. Many, many more. You could read your Proverbs. You could read the Beatitudes. You can think of many instances. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You can't worship both God and mammon. See, that gets it back to the original context of what we've been saying. You can't have a God, that is, where you look to get significance and security. You can't do it both. And why would he choose money? It's a pretty serious issue, isn't it? But what's really going on? Now, here's where I'm going to get some really important nuance for you. First of all, what, what, how does it make sense? It just doesn't make sense to me. Those who desire to be rich are going to bring a lot of destruction upon themselves. And I'm going... Okay, help me understand that, because quite frankly, I'm still dealing with this issue of, yeah, I would love to have 
whole bunch of money. Okay? I would. I have all kinds of things I'd love to do in life with that money. But here, here's, here's what we need to think about. Greed has a way, doesn't it, of turning everything that is gold into dross. Everything to gold gets turned to dross when it's accompanied with greed. As James Ogilvie says in his book on the t seven deadly sins, greed turns love, I put it up on the screen earlier, greed turns love into lust. Now think about all the destructive things that happen when, when greed turns love into lust. All the sexual abuse, all the pornography and the abuse of people, all the sex trafficking, but that's just the stuff that's in the headlines. All the in-marriage abuse, all the struggles of a teenager, girl, or boy. When greed turns love into lust, leisure into sloth. We're going to definitely do sloth before we're over. And sloth is not being lazy. Not necessarily. Leisure into sloth. Hunger into gluttony. Honor into pride. Righteous indignation into anger. And admiration into envy. Are you getting a picture now? Something that can be good and a virtue with greed turns into a vice. In greed, you see, our desires get the best of us, bringing out the worst in us. Greed, our desires get the best of us, bringing out the worst in us. To be sure, desire, ambition, you're saying to yourself earlier, now I'm going to say it out loud, isn't it true that it's the source of some of the best things that we do? When is it that desire for the good and of this life becomes like omnivorous greed for the goods of this life that desire is perverted? Again, distinguishing the good of this life and how wealth can rightly serve that good and that happiness versus when the wealth itself becomes the goods, plural, now particular, the good, and now it's perverted. You see, this is part of the insidious nature of greed. It can look so much like ourselves at our very best. Human creativity, drive, ambition to produce, the desire to leave something of ourselves untouched by the ravages of, the, of mortality and the fall, to, to leave a legacy that's meaningful. All of that is the very beautiful thing there is about us as humans made the image of God. Those are beautiful things. But like that, crosses a line. And now ambition becomes selfish ambition. Greed takes over work. And it's perverted. I'm thinking here of William Williman in his book on sinning like a Christian. Again, another book on I'm reflecting on, on the uh, seven deadly sins. And he says it this way, the thing that first impresses us about greed and the other seven deadly sins is how utterly ordinarily, ordinary and unspectacular they are. I mean, these are the mundane, all too human foibles of the human race in general, the seven deadly sins. 
not of the few utterly depraved sins that we like to talk about and read about in the newsprint. Surely, we're asking ourselves, he says, surely there are more serious sins than sloth, greed, gluttony, anger, lust, envy, and pride. For the seven are stock and trade, daytime, soap, opera, TV, but they are hardly the most terrible things of which human beings are capable. The more spectacular sins, political tyranny, ethnic hatred, religious persecution, genocide, racial violence, they all somehow failed to make the cut in the deadly sins. Or did they? See, what is he saying? He goes on to explain it this way. What makes greed and the other seven sins so deadly is their generative quality. Now we're getting there. Now we're understanding what did Paul have in mind? What did God have in mind when he said, look, you've got to understand, greed brings horrible things into the world and into your life. How did they get there? Because they are more accurately called not the seven deadly sins, but the seven capital sins, or perhaps the seven cardinal sins, which speaks to the fact that these are the sins of the heart. These are the sins that are like the source of all sins. They're the head of which the rest forms. They're the spout, the, the fountain, at the very, you know, head of the fountain of which this vast uh, flood is the result. It's evil. And wouldn't Satan want to do nothing more than to make it good? Greed is good. And wrong. That leads to the fourth point, the haughtiness of greed. Verse 17, is for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Why did it do that? Well, you should know now by the way it was framed. See, at the core of greed is pride. And now you begin to realize that, that, that there was one um, ancient who started when they did the Ten Commandments, he started with greed, the last one, thou shalt not covet, and he made a case that all the others are an expression of greed until you bounce to the very top. And what's the top one? Thou shalt not make no other God but me. And that's what you're doing. It's the haughtiness. It's the arrogance that takes into our own hands the kind of arrogance that says, I can satisfy myself. I can build my own fortress. And it will satisfy me. It will make me happy. And the proverb says, chuckle, chuckle, in your own imagination. In other words, there is nothing outwardly spectacular about greed, you might be thinking, but it is heinous, ugly, evil, because it gets to the core of what goes wrong in our world. The evil of greed, when even riches are promised for godly living, the scheme will fail if it getting rich is the motive for obeying God. Listen to the way the proverb says it. A faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished or uncursed. Now, did you see the distinction there? On the one hand, riches is a blessing. Wealth is a good thing. And it acknowledges as much. But when wealth becomes the end thing, 
it becomes a very evil thing. Luke 12 puts it this way, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What does it consist of, Lord? Well, of course, we know. God. He is everything. So we're getting closer now to understanding greed, aren't we? That for Christians, for those of us who are trying to take Jesus seriously, sin is not just a, a foible. It's not a slip-up. It's not a mistake. Sin is offensive precisely because it's rebellion against God. It offends his creator love to reject it. Our greedy tendencies to trust in money for happiness and security undercut then our trust in God. It's interesting in, in Aquinas, he explains how it is that greed is a kind of self-delusion since riches have a way of deceiving us that we can attain self-sufficiency. That's why it's so dangerous. Greed becomes a false god, a matter of misdirected worship, that is. The Exodus parallels this again in the first commandment related to the last commandment. Our greed is not only a matter of desire, you see, it's of wanting something we ought not to want. That's not what greed is, just. That's a trivial way of thinking of greed. Oh, you know, I really shouldn't want that. That's, that's not the point. Greed is perhaps more to the point of idolatry. Money is our main means of attaining what we call happiness in life and purpose and meaning. What's the remedy? Verse 18, the remedy is they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures in themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here again, wealth is not bad, especially insofar as it has a purpose according to godliness. But wealth can be bad. And the temptation is because it's so close and near and we can so easily manipulate it and work it, the temptation is to make it bad, is the point. And when it is wealth, not godliness, that we are focused upon, it's a curse. I think what's interesting about this is the way in which, uh, I think it was uh, Aristotle or, or someone, but he pitted uh, the vices and the virtues against each other in the Nicomachean Ethics. And he pitted greed against generosity. And that's really important to think about. That's what this is saying. Greed, if you want to know what the anti-greed is, it's generosity. That is purposefulness in your wealth. Wealth with purposeless, purposefulness. I had an old friend once tell me a long time ago, he happens to work in the financial world, and he said, Preston, where I see all the problems with wealth is purposeless wealth. That people should, you know, as they begin their endeavors, they should have goals for their wealth. What is it that, that I see as a good and noble thing to do with your wealth, my wealth? What are my goals? And when you reach those goals, you see, it's really easy for someone to say no to some possession or some experience or trip because they can't afford it. I mean, that's not a temptation to be greedy to be poor, if you will. The temptation, the real temptation, the strong temptation, I'm speaking from bad experience, I'm afraid, is I have it. 
and I don't have a clear enough purpose for it such that I can't say no. You see what I'm saying? In other words, this remedy seems to suggest that, that if, if, if insofar as we think of God as the giver of all good things, and insofar as the purpose of all good things are to be enjoyed and served and used in the service in a way that's compatible with Godness in my life, then I'll have goals for my money, my work ambitions. And when those goals are satisfied, I need to look for another goal that's noble. <laughs> you see, instead of just piling it up. And that's, I think, the point here. Well, there's a lot of scripture that talks about how important this is. But it's interesting how our passage kind of brings us full circle, doesn't it? Because it takes you back to the reality that for the Christian, wealth and stewardship go hand in hand. Wealth and stewardship is the remedy to greed. And greed will destroy you. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your work. It's an acid that will take what is beautiful and good, that's the point, and make it horrible and ugly. There's so much scripture about this. I encourage you to read it as you meditate upon it. But it ends with thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Does that sound familiar? Again, think of the attitude. Think of the, 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 uh, the Sermon of the Mounts. I have come that you may have life and life more abundant. A context where he he prays for those who are anxious about their wealth, who are greedy. Anxiety about money is one of the first signs of greed. Anger about money is another good sign, you see. Reliance upon it. Getting your worth by comparing your possessions to other people's possessions, your, your experiences to other people's experiences. These are all the signs. Rather than thinking of the life that God and his providence has given to you and considering what it says here, that as stewards of this great treasure we call life and even the wealth that would come to us, to consider how it would be that it would truly be true that it's better to give than to receive. I've never believed that. Can I just say that again? <laughs> I've just never believed it. I believe it. God, I don't believe it. It's better to give than to receive as in you're going to have more abundant life. Now, I see it sometimes. By God's grace, there are moments when I'll, you know, he'll move me to give something away that's pretty precious to me. And, and when I do, I'm going to tell you, there is such joy. And so I encourage us to take this season, if you are doing that, you don't have to, but to take a season as we come to this table, even now, a Lenten season, examining our hearts, seeing and rediscovering again why the cross that ends with resurrection and ascension brings us back to that ancient song. How it is, where can we go apart from God's presence? There is no place, no situation, no circumstance that God will not be with you. And if God is for us, what? Who could be against us? What could be against us? That's the narrative of the Holy Bible.